What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Roll for Persuasion. I'm your host, Andrew Richardson. Thank you guys so much for joining me for another episode. It is one of the highlights of my week to get to talk with cool people in the community and then bring those conversations and share them with you guys. Before we get to my guest, let's run through some quick business. Make sure you follow the show on social media. Twitter and Instagram is where it's at, at Roll Persuasion on both of those. I love hearing from you guys, love interacting. So chat me up, send me a DM, whatever you want. It is great. I love to hear from you and talk. You can also email the show, Andrew at RollForPersuasion.com. So if you prefer to email, if you are not into the whole social media scene, that is great too. You can do that as well. Our show is supported by awesome Patreon backers. Thank you guys so much for your Patreon support. Um, It is hugely appreciated. Just five bucks a month does a lot to help this show for the costs of hosting and uh, equipment and all that fun stuff. Plus, I try and do some cool things. Uh, After you've been a backer for a few months, I'll shoot you some free dice. And that reminds me, Brady, I think you've been a backer for three months. And if that is true, shoot me a DM or something. I will get your dice out to you because you have earned it. Thank you for your support. And a kind of new cool thing that we're doing here on the show for Patreon backers is a little thing that I randomly decided today to call a zone of truth, which at the end of the show, after we do the outro, Patreon backers will have a special feed that contains an extra oh, five to 10 minutes of just uh, shooting the shit with the guests I have on. So if you are a Patreon backer, make sure that you have added the special exclusive link on patreon.com slash rule for persuasion so that you can access the episodes with the zone of truth tagged at the end again patreon.com slash rule for persuasion it is great stuff great time and a big help to me and i appreciate you guys this show is also brought to you from two awesome sponsors first of which is eldritch foundry they make really cool custom minis they're rolling out new things all the time i backed them on kickstarter They're out for everyone now. They're just a super cool miniature company. If you want some nifty custom minis, they are the place to go. Eldritch-Foundry.com. I know they just added some new weapons. They're adding some new base options, new races all the time. They're pumping out new content on a regular basis. So there is always something cool and new to add to your miniature. And if you want to support the show and get a discount, you can use my code ROLLPERSUASION at checkout to save 10%. And that helps me out too. So we all win. It's really great. Eldritch-Foundry.com. And as you know, we are also supported by Talon & Claw, one of my favorite makers of wooden gaming accessories, specifically their DM screens, their dice vaults. You can go to talonandclaw.etsy.com and check out all the cool stuff that Anthony is cooking up in his shop. He's making some cool, cool things. He's got some awesome limited stuff that comes out with some really, really cool, unique woods. So make sure you go check those out. Great people, great company. And of course, you can use my code ROLLPERSUASION to get 10% there as well. So you can load up your gaming closet and help out the show. It's really, I mean, it's really kind of the best thing you could do in 2020, quite frankly, if you ask me. So uh, so go check them out. I appreciate the support, and they do too. So without any further ado, I am very excited to introduce our guest this week, someone who has a very cool blog and a very cool book that unfortunately my DM recently got, so I'm sure it will be impacting my game very soon. Keith, what's going on, man? Uh, Not much. How are you? I am. I am good, dude. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You are the author, Thank you for inviting me. yeah, of the Monsters Know What They're Doing: Combat Tactics for Dungeon Masters, which is a cool name and it's a cool looking book. I have a copy that I've not read yet, but my DM has dived in. So, how did the book come about? You, you've had a blog for a bit, but but how did the book itself come about? What's in it? What kind of stuff are you kind of sharing with people through this book? I have had the blog for a while, and uh, people had been asking me for a while whether I ever planned to 
make a book out of it. And for the longest time, I said, no, <laughs> I don't No, I don't think I'm gonna. Right. Um, no plans to do so. And one day out of the blue, I got a contact from an editor at uh, Saga Press um, asking if I would turn it into a book for them. And uh, I honestly suspected that I was being hoaxed at first. <laughs> right. Just put that in I, your spam folder and move on. <laughs> I, 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 I just – I um, – I, I did a little bit of due diligence to make sure that the uh, the editor who had contacted me was in fact a real person, um, and did work for the publisher. But yeah, it turned out he was a D and D player himself. He had been a reader of the blog. He had uh, read "Live to Tell the Tale," my ebook for players, and he was really enthusiastic about it. And, and wanted to uh, wanted to make something out of this and so I said okay and we worked together and and I think put out a uh, really good product it's it's a compilation of the same kind of analyses that are on the blog in many instances it is the same analyses that are on the blog but with a couple of differences the book contains mo- only monsters that are in the monster manual the okay. blo- on the blog I delve into Volo's Guide to Monsters, Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes. The book is strictly Monster Manual Monsters, but it also includes many Monster Manual Monsters that I have not looked at on the blog. They are exclusive content to the book. Griffins, Hippogriffs, Arakogra, Kenku, Zorn, Purple Worms. Those are just a, a few off the top of my head that you'll find in the book, but not on the blog. And they will not appear on the blog because they are exclusive to the book. Very awesome. And so how, how long have you had the blog for? What kind of was the the impetus to start it and really get into this idea of, of monster combat tactics? Because on the surface, I think it makes sense. I think most D&D players have had or are currently having the experience of going into a fight encounter, the goblins stand there and you hit them and they hit you until they die. And that's that's all combat is. And it kind of seems like, yeah, like your whole focus is solving that problem and making combat more than, you know, line up and poke each other. Yeah, we've we've all experienced that, uh, DM and player alike. I started it in 2016, and I, I have to be perfectly honest, my impetus for why I began it is a little bit fuzzy. I don't really remember the exact sequence of cause and effect, but I know there were a few things that were going on at the same time. One of them was that I just felt a need to start writing and to write on a regular basis. Long, long time ago, I used to work as a writer and editor for Alternative News Weekly in Albany, New York. Okay. Uh, now defunct, unfortunately. And I got out of that industry. Well, I mean, in, in 2001 and 2002, the industry just collapsed, not just the alternative press, but publishing in general. It was very hard to find work as an editor at that time, and I I eventually gave up and then left the field. But I never stopped being interested in writing and in language, and I wanted to to get myself writing on a regular basis, and I got the idea to start a blog – a friend of mine, uh, who I also happened to play D&D with, helped me 
get that set up. So thank you, Steve. You, 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 I owe you a lot right now. Um, Every, everybody needs a Steve in their life. Like that, that, that person Steve. who gives that push, right? <laughs> uh, but also I had been uh, playing 5e for a little while and I came back to 5e after many, many years of not playing D&D at all. I, First got my start way back in the days of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, the first edition of the game. I stopped playing shortly after the second edition had come out because I was growing more interested in other role-playing games, other genres. And I never came back until my wife wanted me to begin a uh, game with her and her co-workers. And when that came to pass the fifth edition had been out for just a short amount of time i think maybe six months or a year not very long at all so i didn't know anything about it i picked up a starter set at a local game store and started flipping through the rules noticing some of the changes had been made noticing how streamlined fifth edition had become compared with what I remembered. And sure, I never yeah. had any experience with the third edition, 3.5, or the fourth edition. Everything I know about those editions is purely hearsay. So I could just be completely talking out of an orifice here. But the impression I got from the outside was that the third edition had suffered from a real case of bloat. And when I looked at 5th edition, I was very pleased to see nothing of the kind. And so we started playing that edition. Um, I went ahead and, and almost immediately picked up the Player's Handbook and the Dungeon Master's Guide and the Monster Manual and, and started really diving into it. And uh, so we've been playing that campaign since 2015. And oh, wow. uh, it's still ongoing. We, we took a year year-and-a-half hiatus when uh, my wife and I and also another player in our group uh, both had kids. But we came back to it about, uh, what is it, January? So about two months ago we came back to it. And, yeah, it's uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really psyched about 5e. I think that it just did amazing things for both the role-playing hobby and for D&D specifically, I think it's it's really been a huge shot in the arm. Yeah, I mean you can't and, you can't uh, really deny the the widespread success it's had, right? The the adoption from the obvious things like Critical Role to, um, I mean you know, the the huge rise in streaming. It was kind of like the perfect addition for for this day and age with emphasis on online interactivity, right? So many people are connecting uh, in the game, you know, via the internet right now. Yeah, and also the fact that now they can do these uh, product launch streams and people tune into these things by the thousands. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there, there is definitely an energy around it that is not like the energy that was around it in the past. Uh, but one of the things I just really, really like about it is how systematic it is, how simple the core mechanics are have become now obviously there's still a lot of uh stuff tacked around around the edges sure, especially yeah. the magic system but the core functions the idea that now 
attack rolls, saving throws, and ability checks all function the same way. Right. Is a very important innovation, in my opinion. And the, the idea of advantage and disadvantage and how they operate is a very important innovation and one that I have found in my tactical analyses really, really drives a lot of decision making or should drive a lot of decision making if people are being smart about it. And, and I think, like you're saying, I think they're a really great tool and they connect so well like you said, with the tactical side. And, and when you stop and think about, okay, what, what is advantage actually representing in this moment? What is, um, you know, an ability check or a proficiency bonus, right? Actually representing, they actually tie really well to, you know, tangible things that you're trying to do in the game. And I, and I think when you as a DM kind of stop and think about those mechanics and how they connect, it's when you can really utilize them, you know, not dissimilar to what, to what you do with like the monsters and their abilities. When you pay attention and put some thought into what you're doing with these different um, pieces, it really kind of, I think it opens the game up and makes it a more enjoyable experience. Yeah. And I also find it really interesting that they made the decision to have advantage and disadvantage on average influence the outcome of an event even more than magic items do because if you do the math a which i have not but i trust that you have i i have <laughs> and advantage or disadvantage on a roll on average influences the the uh die roll by about four plus or minus four wow when when the roll that you need on a d20 is close to the middle of the distribution, like from 8 to 12. Yeah. Uh, then it is plus 5. It's very, very big. When you consider that the most powerful magic weapons in 5th edition D&D are plus 3. They are no longer plus 5 like they were when God's grandma was a little girl. They're <laughs> plus 3 now. Plus 3 is the yeah. schmanciest magic weapon you can get. And even that does not count quite as much in a typical situation as advantage does. So you can get an edge from a magic weapon, but it's not going to be as much of an edge as simply having a circumstance that gives you the upper hand, which I, I think that's a very interesting choice that the designers made. And it's a strong reason whether you are a player playing your player character or a dungeon master playing a monster, to seek out sources of advantage whenever you can and try to impose disadvantage on your foes whenever you can and however you can. It's a really big deal. And, and it really, when you, you know, not, not to, we could spend hours talking just about mechanics and, and I would like to, so let's not deep dive too much, but for a minute, let's, um, I, I think when you take in, you know, the idea of like the magic system, right? The, the, the spells that can have that effect, like fairy fire, for instance, right? It's like a first level sure. spell. Um, I think a lot of people, especially new players just kind of move right past it. They unlock their second levels and that's where they're going. But I mean, that's huge because of exactly what you're saying, you know, providing advantage, right? Especially in darkness. Yes, exactly. If, if you would otherwise be, uh, I mean, I, I'm probably like, four out of five player characters have dark fashion these days. <laughs> right. I mean, or if they don't, they very quickly find have... some glasses or something so that they can circumvent yeah, being human. When yeah. you only have three base races that don't have dark vision, 
I'm probably exaggerating with the four out of five because I do know I've seen from the from the D and D Beyond charts that a lot of people still like to play good old humans. Sure. Uh, but it it seems like in any given party that I've seen, at least half of the player characters have dark vision. So maybe maybe fairy fire is not as big a deal for them. But if you are you know that that takes you from a situation where your foe is in darkness, you are effectively blinded, you have disadvantage on your attack rolls against them, to they are outlined by fairy fire, you can't miss them, it's shedding dim light, it's it's outlining them, you have advantage on your attacks against them. If, if going from normal to advantage is big, going from disadvantage to advantage is enormous. Well, like, like you said, it's almost like an eight-point swing on the die, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. Uh it's massive. Uh which is uh you you want to talk funny mechanics, take a look at the lucky feet and see <laughs> what it really does. Just yeah. look at it really feet, closely. Feet many because... DMs love to uh, love to ban. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't ban it. I mean, if somebody takes that feat, they're going to have so many moments of awesome. Right. Yeah. I I I live for that kind of stuff. I am not a DM who takes an adversarial view toward my players, which people might think the opposite because of the blog I write. Sure, yeah, not, I was going to say that. I'm not, yeah, I am not out there trying to kill players, as as evidenced by the fact that I've written a tactical book for players as well. Um, what I am going for is monsters that feel like creatures that do what they were designed to do that are taking the abilities they have and using them the way an evolved creature would use them, right. which is to say to their greatest effect and as a staple of their behavior, whether that's hunting or whatever else. Um, I want the monsters to live in the world realistically. And I know it's it's kind of a big joke to talk about things being realistic in a fantasy game where, setting. You know, sure, people fly. Yeah, right. But uh, but you know there are people out there who are very original, very creative in these ways that I. I just can't touch, to be perfectly honest. Um, I'm a creative person, but I'm not creative in that way to be able to create something that no one has ever seen before. I don't have that kind of creativity. The kind of creativity I have is to look at what exists already, but from a different angle. I'm a remixer, and I like... In, instead of trying to come up with something that no one has ever seen before, what I try to do is take the things that everyone's seen before and make them fresh, make them come alive um, by getting all the details right. And I think it has such a, a big impact on the game itself and people's experience because I, at least in my observation, um, you know, having only played only played fifth edition and only for the last, uh, I guess, three years now, um, there often seems to be kind of two general camps. You know, there are the people who love to role play and there are the people who love to min max and combat and grind and loot. And the, I think there exists an idea, especially in the, in the 
we'll call them thematic players. Um, I tend to put myself in that camp. I love the, the role play and immersing yourself in, in the world. There tends to be a mindset for those people, I think, that combat is almost a necessary evil. And I think that comes out of that experience of three goblins appear. I shoot, they shoot, they miss, I miss, eventually they're dead. And so when when I first heard about your your book, I kind of had that immediate thought. I was like, oh, this is, you know, we wanna we wanna overpower DM so they kill people. But I, I clicked on your blog and read a little bit and it very quickly clicked with me what what you're talking about that making the combat experiences feel more real, air quotes, because the monsters and the adversaries are acting in ways that seem correct for how they should act. Mm-hmm. Elevates combat yeah. experience from simply, you know, our, our clang clang to to an immersive part of the game. So the 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 immersion does not stop for people who love role playing once it, you know initiative happens, right? It continues all throughout. Um, I had a session just yeah. a few weeks yeah. ago with with my DM, Jay, shout out, thank you, um, who has your book and has been trying to integrate some of those concepts into the combat. And we had a great combat with a bunch of hags and it, and it was just different, like it just felt different from any D&D combat I'd had before. And and it was just little things, um, I think that he picked up from your book about how the monsters should be thinking and what their motivations are. Um, and, and it just, it kind of really changed the whole game. Sounds like hyperbole, but it really did. <laughs> Dungeon mastering as method acting. But, you know, <laughs> in, in a sense, that really is what I do personally. How I come to it is I want my – when I'm running a hag, I want to say, okay, what does a hag want? You know, what is it like to be a hag in this situation? And and it's I think it's funny that you mentioned hags because my article on hag tactics is the runaway number one post on my entire blog. That's so interesting. Not even That's not what I would expect. The, the the second place is beholders and it's not even close. It is a distant second. People really want to know what to do with hags. Uh, but just to to drop a little history on you. Way back in the day. Um, I mean not Gary Gygax back in the day, but uh, like this is late 80s early 90s there was a thing circulating uh, the uh, the four types of role-playing gamers and they were the real man the real role player the loony and the munchkin and uh the real man was your basic you know combat oriented tough guy who just wants to hack and slash um and uh you know scoop up loot real role players exactly what it sounds like loonies people who would do anything for a cheap laugh and the munchkins being the kids who had no sense of proportion or how the world works and were min-maxing everything because they were on a power trip. Um, and I have always been a real role player, hands down. Except for you know when I was younger, I, I made a few deep forays into loonydom. But my, my home <laughs> base was always role player. You know, when, when people talk about other systems – that don't have the kind of highly detailed combat that D&D has and say, well, this is a system for true role players and true storytellers. Uh, okay, I guess. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know enough about those systems to, to really dive in and argue about them, but my gut instinct is to say, are you really more about role-playing and storytelling than D&D is? 
or are you just not so interested in combat and so you've decided to cut that part out or or try to make it as non-rule bound as the other aspects of adventure gaming right. are yeah um i don't know i you know i could just be prejudiced here but <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> because, i i, you know, I think you're, I think you're is, onto something is what i do not, nothing you know different strokes for different folks every system that is successful has its adherence and not every system is right for every player and that's what's so you great know, is, is that we're, we're in a place, right, where there are so many indie games and so many different things that, that people can do to kind of find that that uh, that thing that scratches their itch. But but I, but I think you're right that um, there are definitely ways that D&D in particular can be more of what people want and maybe they don't realize it or maybe they haven't, you know, utilized mechanics or, or, or a mindset properly to really get at the thing they want. Um, I want to go back real quick just because it, it stuck with me that you mentioned that hags are... Just oddly, that's so weird to me that they're like the number one thing on your blog. Are, are there um, are there monsters? Let's say three. Like pick a top three. Like are there three monsters in D and D that you think in general people typically run poorly um, for you know wh- whatever the reason might be, but people maybe typically just can't wrap their head around how to play that monster in in a intelligent way. I I, I hate to cop out uh, on a question like that, but. I have to say, I don't know how other people run their tables um, unless I've had the opportunity to watch them by a stream or something. I have no idea what other people do right and wrong. Um, well, then let's, let's remix never, the question. I would, never presu- I would never presume to make any judgment about how other people are running hags um, because, I mean, for starters, I myself really have never made that much use of hags in in the adventures that i have yeah um i i think i i included one recently as a uh, as a more or less along the way encounter uh not not really a random encounter but here's something that happens while you're on the road it involves hags right uh in a larger adventure that otherwise had nothing to do with that. Um, but, you know, I, I maybe there are just certain monsters that are, that are not intuitive, that are a little trickier to figure out how they should operate. Uh, and I wouldn't have known it before, but... Clearly, based on the site traffic that I get, hags are one of those. People want to know what to do with them. Um, when you look at the other things that people uh, that, that people look up the most, those aren't surprising. It's like beholders, vampires, mind flayers, things you would expect. Um, yeah. Chromatic dragons. No surprises there. Um, goblins. Now you know goblins could be could be one of those because uh, goblins were the impetus for my starting the blog. I mean, when when I was I, I never finished answering the question uh, about why I started the blog. Um, I started thinking about the subject of the blog because I had been running Lost Mine at Fandelver, and I thought that the early encounters in uh, Wave. Is it Wave Echo Cave? Yeah, the Wave first Echo one Cave. You go to? Yeah. 
Uh, oh, no, Wave Echo Cave is the last, is like the final one. Um, yeah, that's that the first final cave one. you go I, I to. Yeah. Cragmaw Cave is that Cragmaw Cave? One? Yeah, because that's where the big bugbear is, I think, or something. Yes, yeah. exactly. Clark. Yes. Yeah, Clark. Um, who, who, for some reason, in my when I ran Fandelver, I think he ended up with an Australian accent. Just, I think I kept saying Clog, and it just kind of <laughs> happened. Clog. I was like, oh, he has Clog. The the first time I ran my players through there, I just there was something unsatisfying about the combat. I felt like I wasn't getting out of those goblins what I should have been getting out of those goblins. And I ascribed a large part of that to the fact that I was trying to figure out how the goblins were supposed to work in the middle of the combat. It's really something I should have thought about before the combat. How are these goblins going to act? Uh, I hadn't gotten into their heads yet, and by the time I was knee-deep in combat, it was too late. Because at that point, all my brain power is monopolized by trying to keep everything moving. It was, you know, nobody multitasks well. There are people who think they multitask well, but nobody does. And you can't really manage a combat encounter as the DM and think about what the basic strategy of the monsters you're using is at the same time. So what you have to do is you have to think about those things beforehand, come to some conclusions, settle on those conclusions, remember them, and then when you're in the middle of the combat, you don't have to think about that stuff anymore. You've already made the key decisions. You already have the the schema in your mind. You've already got the roadmap. And so all you have to do at that point is follow it, and you can save your brain power for managing the situation. That that is the entire concept behind both the monsters know what they're doing and live to tell the tale which is the book for players which is you're you're going to make a lot of standing decisions and situational decisions. Standing decisions are the ones that you make in advance and they always apply unless something goes horribly wrong so that you don't have to think about them anymore. And for uh, situational decisions that's going to involve some decision-making on the fly, but what you do in advance instead of making the decision is you make the rule by which you're going to make the decision. Gotcha, yeah. So it might be a situational decision whether you're going to cast sleep, but you can have a rule in place that says, I'm only going to use sleep against four or more low-level monsters who are within the area of effect. That is a very sensible way to apply sleep. And so that way, when you're in the middle of the combat encounter and you've got spells to cast and you've got eight or nine to choose from and you're not sure which one to go to, well, the monster I'm fighting is a, uh, is a tougher one. There's only one of it, or there's two of it. Just rule out sleep right then and there. You don't you don't even have to think about it anymore because it that situation doesn't meet the criteria that you have previously established for casting sleep. And to to give yourself a little playbook like that can save you a lot of trouble uh, and and a lot of delay. It speeds things up in the in the combat situation. Um, in the encounter to have as many decisions as possible made 
in advance. You know, everyone likes a high-speed, low-drag combat. Nobody likes the one where it comes around to the player and they spend two minutes clutching their head in their hands thinking, man, what do I want to do? Nobody wants that. Even the player who's clutching his head in his hands doesn't want that. Especially the Um, player clutching their head in their hands. Yeah, because everyone's looking at you, tapping their feet, waiting for you to go. Well, and I think from a role-playing perspective, too, kind of like uh, um, going back to what we were talking about earlier, but but from a role-playing perspective, making those decisions ahead of time, you know, cannot not only be like tactical, smart decisions, you know, sleep, four-plus characters of, of whatever power level, but it also allows you to go ahead and decide, like, what would what would Andrew the rogue do? You know, not necessarily me as a player, but what would my character do in this situation? They would typically... This would be their mindset, right? And so you're setting you're setting those parameters around yourself. You're removing analysis paralysis, and you're really kind of freeing right, up right, your right, brain right, right. to yeah. to play the character instead of like you know suddenly jumping out of the game and ruffling through all your papers and flipping your spell cards around everywhere. Um, I, I love that. I love that it takes away, you know, it's not it's not systematizing the game in a way that removes the joy and the role playing. It's really getting roadblocks out of the way of that, so you can really yes. lean into those things. Yeah, this is itself a form of role-playing. I mean, if you look at any kind of endeavor that requires disciplined practice, sports, music, um, strategy games that people play competitively like chess, go, bridge, um, people spend a lot of time studying the fundamentals and just mindfully practicing, 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 practicing. They do exercises. They test themselves. Um, they, uh, they, they do forms, like in, in martial arts. Um, they play scales and arpeggios and, and, and things like that. Um, that is the purpose of all of that is to get yourself to a level of automaticity in, in the carrying out of, of certain for lack of a better word, tasks that you're always doing and developing muscle memory kind of things. Yes. And if you are an adventurer, somebody who is making a life out of placing yourself in perilous situations and using a unique skill set to conquer those situations, you are going to need to develop that kind of muscle memory. Um, in order to not die stupidly. And <laughs> right, yeah. so, you know, you as a player may not be spending your every waking hour thinking about when you should be casting a sleep spell, but your character has given that a considerable amount of thought if, if you're really trying to play them as a competent adventurer. Yeah. And so... You know, you should you should at least be able to approximate a measure of that. Um, but yeah, the more you can do, the more you can do automatically. So I, I actually have a graduate degree in education, and uh, one of the writers that I studied in my graduate program is Alfred North Whitehead. Okay. Uh, I'm going to pretend uh, I know who that is. I'm just going to Google it. He has has a series of of essays compiled in a book called The Aims of Education. And one of the things that really sticks with me about Whitehead is how he talks about uh, 
the journey from being a novice at something to being a master at something. And the first thing you have to do is learn all the basic rules. Just get the get the all the fundamentals down. And once you have learned the fundamentals, once they become automatic to you, then you begin to develop style. You begin to develop your own way of doing things, your own spin, your own flourishes. It stops looking like something straight out of the workbook and starts looking like you. Yeah. And once you have developed style, then you progress to the level of being able to take everything you've learned, all of the basic skills, all of your own unique ways of uh, putting those skills into action, all of, all of this individuality that you have developed about how you do all the basic things. Now you can begin applying all of this to your own purposes, not just purposes that other people assign to you, not just uh, the things you are doing for the sake of practice and mastery, but things that are really important to you. Uh, and he referred to that as power. And so um, I guess one of the things that I hope to impart to both dungeon masters and players, dungeon masters with the monsters know what they're doing and players with live to tell the tale is to help them develop power and style. Um, but also to, to have the characters and the monsters possess power and style that they, yeah, I mean, hags talk about a monster with style, right? They, yeah. <laughs> they're all about their style. And, and, you know, I bet one of the reasons people are so interested in reading up on hag tactics is they want to know what the style of a hag looks like. And I come to those conclusions by analyzing the stat blocks and trying to figure out, given this constellation of traits, this set of ability scores, what makes the most sense? What is going to be effective? Because I take sort of an evolutionary viewpoint toward it. Sure, I mean, yeah. yeah, you can say, well, something like an owlbear can't evolve. It has to be created by magic. Okay, but even if you begin from that point, Owlbears have little owlbears, and they grow up and have little owlbears of their own. And eventually you get enough generations down the road that they are beginning to evolve instincts of their own. Adapt to their environment. And you know, They're beginning to adapt to their environment. They're doing the things that are necessary for them to survive, given that they live in a world governed by the 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons rule set. Right. As opposed to, say, laws of physics and biology. <laughs> sure. And uh, and so, given that they've evolved, what are they going? You know, how are they going to survive? How are they going to use the skills they possess to help themselves survive? And so, they are going to have a style of behavior, um, which I base in large part on their ability scores. Uh, which ability are they? primarily relying on for offense which ability are they primarily relying on for defense just those two things tell you a lot yeah defense tells you whether they are 
tanking it out and absorbing damage or whether they're darting around and trying to avoid it. And the offensive ability, whether it's strength, dexterity, or a mental ability, tells you whether they're trying to inflict damage from up close or far away, whether they're primarily relying on um, physical attacks or magical attacks, and so forth. And and just knowing that is is a large part of finding out what a monster's style is. So, for example, when you look at the goblin and distinguish it from your other low-level cannon fodder-type humanoids like uh, lizard folk and kobolds and um, orcs are, are orcs and gnolls are a little tougher than those others, but you wouldn't necessarily know that just from their description. Um, Goblins have a very particular niche. They are hit-and-run attackers. They are slippery. They would really be crazy to engage in melee unless they really command the terrain. Like, if if this is their territory and, and they know their way around and you don't, and it's dark and you can't see in the dark, and they've got little tunnels to to run down and they've got uh, choke points that they can lure you through and then some of their buddies gang up on you you know situation like that they might resort to melee but out in the open they're not going to get close to you if they can help it they're going to snipe and hide snipe and hide snipe and hide and that is going to give them their best chance of success so that's what they lean on nobody is willingly going to do things that give them a poorer chance of success. They might lack the intelligence to adapt to a changing situation in which their usual course of action is no longer effective, but they will always use a, a course of action that is effective for the situations they find themselves in the most. Right, yeah. And, and I think you, you touched on something there too that is interesting and kind of flows out of the, the whole monster mindset is terrain is another thing that in the game, I think it gets hand-waved a lot um, and maybe people don't always know what to do with it. It's like, okay, is it is it difficult terrain? Uh, sure, it's rocky. I guess we'll do the math and deal with your speed. But when you start to take that same approach and you think about, okay, the goblins, the owlbear, whatever's here, it lives in this space. How would it interact in this space? Therefore, if it was startled or attacked or feeling defensive or, or whatever that might be, how would it interact with the space around? And, and, and all of that, I imagine, then comes back to the whole thing of making the game feel more real because every aspect of it is now playing an integral part. It's not just, it's not just numbers. It's not just, uh, oh, yeah, no, you can, you can move your 30 feet. You're fine. Um, it's, it's all integrating into what you as the DM are having your monsters do. You know, you asked me uh, what mistakes I think DMs make. I can't speak for other DMs because I don't see them in action, but I can I can tell you what kinds of mistakes I have made, and I can tell you um, how systematically looking at tactics from a variety of points of view have led me to stop making those mistakes and... Uh, venture into the brave new world of completely different ones. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, uh, 
so the, the, the first mistake I would say I made was waiting until the combat encounter itself to think about how the combat encounter should go. Right. Uh, I would say other mistakes that I have cleaned up in my own dungeon mastering are not thinking enough about terrain and actually underusing difficult terrain because a lot of things should be difficult terrain. And I think there might, there might, I'm just speculating here, wild speculation, but I think there might be a widespread mentality out there that since difficult terrain is bad for everybody and nobody really likes having to go over difficult terrain, we'll just have a whole lot less of it. Sure. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree that that is a mindset that exists. Yeah. Um, and whereas I'm, I'm, you know, now just heading the opposite direction, I'm inclined to use a lot more difficult terrain uh, in my encounters because I think obstacles make things interesting. Yeah, um, sure. conditions of obscured visibility um, really paying attention to perception and stealth and how those interact because that is a complicated interaction right there and it's easy to mess up um, but the fact that people are seeing and hearing and smelling at the same time not just people but creatures, monsters as well um, definitely, I think, um, there should be a lot less combat taking place in featureless rectangular rooms and a lot more taking place in, uh, uh, environments with lots of obstacles, lots of cover, um, making use of cover, you know, you, I, you've seen the princess bride, right? Of course. The all-time epic sword battle between Inigo Montoya and the Man in Black, it does not take place in a gymnasium. It takes place basically on an obstacle course. You know, they're going up and down. They're going up and down steps. They are fighting next to a cliff. There's this random bar that exists for no reason anyone can justify that they can both swing from. Um, but it's, it's making that fight lively. It's making it exciting. It's it's adding all sorts of uh, considerations that they can take advantage of and, and possibly um, use to trip up the opponent. Uh, defensible space. More monsters should make use of defensible space. Um, now, I will say one thing that I'm kind of proud of that I have always done in my game mastering and this is regardless of what system I'm playing, I pay a lot of attention to what every player... Uh, when I say player, I mean like uh, every creature that you might encounter, every non-player character, um, but the player characters as well. What every actor, I guess would be a better word for it, what every actor knows and doesn't know. Because that is a really interesting factor that affects a lot of decisions. That is how you get powerful villains who can nevertheless be one-upped. That is how 
you get um, uh, I, I just I just think that leads to the most interesting situations when there is a disparity between one one side knows and what the other right, side knows. Yeah. Um, and especially I, as a DM, when that's a dynamic that you can lean into and and kind of tease out. In the game. I love that dynamic, and I have always made very, very extensive use of it. Um, but, you know, it may be that there are dungeon masters out there who either treat their monsters and NPCs as automatons or who go to the other extreme and have them act as if they know everything that the dungeon master knows. Some, you know, random group of kobolds in a cave is not going to know everything the dungeon master knows. But by gum, they are going to know their cave. Right, yeah. They're going to know every inch of their cave, and you don't. Um, and that can make things interesting. That's how you get Tucker's kobolds. And they're not going to actively, because I think, you know, again, this is something you, you see sometimes. Uh, they're not going to actively avoid parts of parts of their cave because it would be difficult for the players right it's going to be the opposite um they're going right. to utilize that because yeah and, and they're going to try to drive right the player yeah. characters into right. the parts of their cave that are difficult for the player characters because kobolds have very very few advantages but the two they have are they're small and they work together and i think it just I, I, again it all comes back to making the game i i imagine as a DM that makes the game more enjoyable for you too, right? Like not only are you creating a great experience for your players, but now you have a bit more agency and creativity in what you're doing behind the screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And definitely real quick. You, you mentioned earlier that you do have uh, another book coming out for players, um, live to tell the tale. Right. So, so and, yeah, and oh, go ahead. Yeah. To preface this, um, Live to Tell the Tale originally existed as an ebook that I self-published. And when Saga Press picked up The Monsters Know What They're Doing, they also picked up Live to Tell the Tale um, on, the, on the condition that I would revise and expand it, which I have done. Um, so there's going to be a lot more information in the print and ebook editions than there was in my old PDF editions. Um, plus, there's going to be real art this time around, and uh, the battle diagrams are going to be done in uh, Illustrator rather than InDesign, <laughs> which <laughs> the, uh, the was PowerPoint not designed layout. for the purpose, <laughs> but I know InDesign, so I made it work. Uh, but they, they're going to look a lot better now. Um, the art is fantastic. I got some really good artists to uh, to work on it. Uh, Lily Pressland, who did the cover of The Monsters Know What They're Doing, also did the cover of Live to Tell the Tale, and I just love it so much. Um, but... Uh, yeah, the, the, basically the whole idea behind Live to Tell the Tale is I started feeling guilty that uh, <laughs> DMs were coming to me saying they had read The Monsters Know What They're Doing and you know gotten total party kills, which was not my original intention at all. I, my, and, my friend did uh, ask me that, like if, if there is, you know, like if, if we could track TPKs, if suddenly at the time that uh, Monsters Know What They're Doing comes out, if there was a they, sudden uptick in TPKs. It's probably gone up. Um, but, you know, so... So I'm like, okay, there are smarter monsters out in the world now. I gotta give, I gotta balance the scales by helping players become smarter too, and give them a way to fight back. 
So that was why I wrote the original uh, ebook, and um, that's that's why I'm really looking forward to the publication of Live to Tell the Tale. I'm sorry to every player out there whose DM has the monsters know what they're doing that they have to wait until June to get their hands on the new edition of Live to Tell the Tale, but. Um, Unfortunately, that's how the publishing industry goes. It's a great time um, for your player to uh, adapt and evolve on their own and then, you know, bring in this extra resource <laughs> yeah, see, uh, as a boost. See how you did. Um, but, um, and, I, and in that book, I really do begin with the fundamentals. Like, I, I talk about what each ability score is for. Um, but I don't want people out there to think that there is nothing in there for the non-beginning player because, you know, again, I talked about fields that rely on discipline practice. Everyone will tell you that when you return to the fundamentals with the benefit of experience, you see them in a new light. And they, they open up realizations to you that you didn't have before. Um, so I'm hoping that, that even intermediate and maybe some experienced players will find something of value uh, in Live to Tell the Tale. Uh, now, one of the things people who have seen my old PDF edition of it and who then go to the new revised edition will notice is that I really overhauled the sample battles. So uh, the book ends with four sample battles. It used to end with three, a level one, a level five, and a level nine battle, and I added a level 15 battle for this edition um, to illustrate making these combat decisions over the course of a combat encounter. And the original level one battle was five level one adventurers against five goblins in a forest. Now it's five level one adventurers against five goblins in a forest with lightly obscured visibility and difficult terrain. So that really changed things. <laughs> it really, really yeah. changed things. But I wanted to bring that experience in at level one so that players would have a chance to immediately get used to the idea of obscured visibility and difficult terrain are things that can happen. And they will change the game in certain ways that you need to adapt to and can and will adapt to. And uh, this will make you a better player and it will make you better able to handle combat encounters in which those things crop up. And I, th I think uh, going back to the, the fundamentals as a player in, like you said, in sport or music, it, it's so easy to learn um, bad habits and, and not realize them. You just practice them so much they become a part of what you do and you probably still do whatever you're doing at a high level. Um, but when you go back and think about fundamentals, like you said, thinking about what each stat block actually applies to, I... I out very many of us have sat down and actually had that thought and just thinking about it right now talking with you is already kind of impacting how i view a player i have right mm -hmm. now because you, you tend to look at it very mechanically okay well dexterity that's going to impact my ability to do these five actions in the world okay cool i want that here um but going back and really assessing 
and I'm looking forward to the book very much now, going back and really assessing deeper how each of the, what, what those say about your player and the kind of decisions they would make is a complete, it's, it's a complete kind of mind shift around approaching how you play. Um, and so while it might be a, you know, quote unquote fundamental, I, th- I think it's one many people um, have probably moved past and, you know, maybe need to go to back and rebuild. So, uh, you know, as somebody who's been playing for a while, I, I'm very excited to go through and uh, your book when it comes out and, and kind of revamp my own mindset around uh, playing my character. And again, I'm I'm not a min maxer. I am a role player. I think that coming up with high concept characters is great. Um, although I I am of the opinion that bounded creativity produces better results than unbounded creativity. And I think that there are there there are players out there who are inclined to take every dial that could that could make their character more distinctive in some way and turn them all up to 11. Right, yeah. Um, and I think you get better results when you pick one or two dials and turn them up rather like, than turning them all up. Like a guitar um, player putting every pedal and every effect on their guitar eventually just yeah. sounds like noise. <laughs> I, I call it the too many fonts in your newsletter problem. Um, some comic sans, some papyrus, some more papyrus. <laughs> but you know, that being said, I think if you want to create a, an unusual character that is not necessarily mechanically optimal, that is great. You know, get into the head of this character and live them and, and, you know, keep them close to your heart. All of that is awesome. And if you want to keep them alive, they have to make the decisions that are going to keep them alive based on how you've decided to build this character. So you can you can create a suboptimal build and still have them behave optimally given right. that build. And that is what I'm trying to help players do. Not to create the perfect, unstoppable character, but to create the interesting, flawed character who nevertheless can function well based on their particular set of strengths and weaknesses that you've chosen to give them. Be the optimal version of themselves. Be the best you you can be. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So you, you really need to, you need to put a motivational poster in the back of the book. <laughs> Like with a with a cat hanging from a, a kitten, yeah, yeah a kitten from hanging a from a telephone wire. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Well, dude, thank thank you so much. I mean, even just talking, um, like like I said, has kind of challenged some of my thinking uh, about the game and and how I approach it conceptually. So I am very excited for when the book comes out. When when is the monsters know what they're doing is out now. By the way, guys, you can get it. It's got I'm looking like a 120 something five star reviews on Amazon, so you can get Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere. When is the? There's new been a book little hiccup out? in availability because it's not available. Uh, Never mind. Take back everything I just said. No, no, no. Well, no, no. <laughs> it, it is available on Amazon again now, and I haven't checked uh, IndieBound today to see if it's uh, available again there too. But what happened was that both uh, Amazon and Ingram, which is the main distributor for independent bookstores. Uh, they both ran out in between printings, ah. and so they 
so for a while they were the the book was on back order but uh i know it is definitely available again from uh amazon now i haven't checked uh IndieBound. Uh, oh, it looks like it is available again from IndieBound too. So that's great. Support your local independent bookseller. Definitely. The uh, paperback edition of The Monsters Know What They're Doing is due out in May. Live to Tell the Tale comes out June 23rd in hardcover and ebook. And also, Tantor Media just literally this week released the audiobook edition of The Monsters Know What They're Doing. So it's available in audiobook format now too. Uh, you can get it on uh, Audible, audiobooks.com, I think Libro FM. You know, wherever you get your audiobooks, it should be available. Very cool. Well, where else can uh, where can people find you online? Where can they check out your blog, social media, all that fun stuff? I am on Twitter. That's really the only social media I use at Keith Amon, K E I T H A M M A N N. Uh, the Monsters Know What They're Doing is themonstersknow.com, and my personal website is spyandowl.com, and uh, I have information about both The Monsters Know and Live to Tell the Tale there, uh, along with links to uh, where you can buy them, and uh, also samples of my photography, if you're interested in seeing that kind of stuff. Renaissance man, truly. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on. I, I Hopefully we get to do it again, maybe when the player book comes out. I've had a chance to read through it. Um, really enjoyed it. Stick around, because again, guys, Patreon backers, we're going to have a little bonus time. After the outro here, we're just going to uh, chat about anything and everything, probably not D&D related. So if you are a Patreon backer, make sure that you stick around for that. Uh, that moment is brought to you by my friends at Smuggler's Coffee, who make delicious coffee. If you love coffee, you've heard me talk about Smuggler's. Store.smugglers.com. Get some of their awesome barrel-aged coffee beans. Grind it up, brew it, and make your life better. So they are bringing us the Zone of Truth, which is coming up right after the exit. But again, Keith, thank you. I appreciate it. And we'll keep talking in just a minute. But until then, guys, make sure that you are being nice to each other. You are having fun playing your games. You're enjoying what you're doing. Make your monsters a little smarter. Make your players a little bit smarter. Uh, think about what is going into those combat encounters, the games that you're playing. Just put that thought in, and it really, uh, I think it's going to make for a better experience. As always, I am Andrew. This is Roll for Persuasion. You can follow the show at Roll Persuasion on Twitter and Instagram. You can check us out, rollforpersuasion.com. Andrew at rollforpersuasion.com if you want to get in touch with me. Patreon.com slash rollforpersuasion if you want to support the show and check out the new Zone of Truth at the end of the episodes. But until then, guys, enjoy your games. 